Hello, this is Fiona Cuthbertson coming for the pod to record Off the Cuff. This week we're lucky enough to have Lord McLaughlin. Lord McLaughlin has had an extensive career in UK politics for more than 30 years. As an MP, he held many senior government positions, including Government Chief Whip, Secretary of State for Transport, Chairman of the Conservative Party and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. He is now a member of the House of Lords, Executive Board Member of XRail Group, Chairman of Airlines UK and Chair of Transport for the North. Welcome, Lord McLaughlin. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Fiona. So, as I mentioned in my intro, you've had quite the political career. Can you tell us a bit about your political journey? I've been very lucky. I didn't come from a very political background, far from it. My dad died when I was very young. I never knew him at all. But I went on a visit to the House of Commons when I was about 15 and thought one day I want to come back here as a Member of Parliament. Didn't quite know how to do it. Sort of comprehensive school in Staffordshire. I wasn't very good at school. School didn't do for me what it does for most people, but I made up for it later on. And which do you prefer, being a member of the House of Lords or a member of the House of Commons? Well, I enjoy the House of Lords, but I wouldn't enjoy it if I hadn't had the experience of the House of Commons. I think in the House of Lords, it's far less party political in a way, but there are times when it is very party political, but it's much more detail and much more consideration of legislation, probably, than that takes place in the Commons. Indeed, I was actually just about to ask you what the main differences between being a member of the House of Lords and Commons are. Obviously, in the House of Lords, you also don't have a constituency. Do you miss the constituency work? I still live in the constituency that I represented, and there are times when you miss it. But there's also a time when you think, actually, you've got to let somebody else take over. I was in the House of Commons for almost 34 years, so I can't say I didn't have a very good run. It was the right time to stand down, and actually long-term planned it. I stood down in the 2019 election, which came a bit sort of out of the blue in a way, because if you remember back to it, uh, we were still had the legislation around the fixed-term parliaments, and there were several occasions when Boris Johnson had tried to get an election and the Labour Party wouldn't support it, and because he didn't have the required numbers, we were curtailed by the fixed-term parliaments. I think I made the right decision, but sometimes you think, oh, I wish I was back there. But most times, I'm, I'm glad I'm not. You said that there was an issue regarding getting the election, but we both know that working cross-party in politics is often key to getting change needed. What would you say that's been the best example of this happening under your watch? I mean, undoubtedly, the coalition was fundamental in 2010. I, I don't think we perhaps realised just what a big change that was in British politics. There'd been no recent history at all of a coalition a government There'd been a Lib Lab pact towards the end of Jim Callaghan's time as Prime Minister, but as to a formal coalition. We'd never really seen one of those in peacetime like we did in 2010. Actually doing the deal with the Liberals gave that government a, a working majority. It was a government that was able to get on with things. When we first met, you were opposition deputy chief whip. That was back in 2001. You ended up as government chief whip in 2010. Obviously, I don't expect you to spill any secrets, but what was it like being in charge of the whip's office? The whip's office is a fascinating place in Parliament, partly because you see the bits on the media about whips coercing people, trying to persuade people to vote the right way, and that's all you really hear. But the whip's office is really the nuts and bolts of what goes on in Westminster. We're almost like the stage manager. Of course, when one looks at Parliament as such, you see 650 members of Parliament. Each member of Parliament 
you know, has his own his or her own constituency, uh, and sometimes you know they can they can be facing personal problems, domestic problems, family illness problems, their own illness problems. All that really is part of what the Whip's Office is there to help and assist with. I often say the Whip's Office is basically the personnel department for the Parliamentary Party. So what tools were indispensable for that job? I think the tools that are indispensable is being trusted by your parliamentary colleagues, first and foremost. And I think there's also the fact that when I was Chief Whip, both in opposition and in government, in opposition... You know, we were coming up to a general election, which we thought we had a very good chance of securing government. We didn't quite make it. In government, we were new into government. So there was a different attitude to what there is when you've been in government for a fair time, I think. I also think one of the big difference was that a lot of people who had had opposition posts and done a lot of hard work, and opposition is hard work, didn't necessarily get into government because of a coalition. So there weren't quite as many spaces as there might have been had we been forming a majority government. Of course. And coming to social media, has that changed the job of the Whip's office and Parliament, do you think? I think it has. I think social media has exploded, really, in the last four to five years. Certainly when I first became opposition chief Whip back in 2005, it wasn't as prominent as it as it is today. I mean, we quite often see sort of messages from WhatsApp groups within the parliamentary party. And people say things which perhaps they wouldn't necessarily wanted to be recorded, whereas in the past, we've just perhaps said them privately to colleagues and they've not been printed out or down on text in front of some screen. So I think that has partly changed the way people operate. Luckily, it doesn't involve me too much because it wasn't there when I was there. We thought we were being very brave introducing pages where telling people when votes were and blackberries rather than the whip coming out by post every week and it coming in a special envelope. Turning the whip by blackberry was seen as sort of revolutionary in my time. The world's moved on. It has indeed. And as you say, as chief whip, you are the personnel department. Often you can't say anything at all. So what was it like when you moved to transport to be able to make public statements after all that time? First and foremost, I wasn't expecting it. I got this phone call one Thursday afternoon from uh, Kate Fall, who was David Cameron's gatekeeper, a very senior person in his office. And uh, she said, you know, Patrick, I know you're coming to see the Prime Minister tomorrow. Could you come down a bit earlier and have a drink with him tonight? And I said, oh, right, OK. It's not an invitation you refuse. So I came down from Derbyshire, I was in my constituency, and uh, went to see the Prime Minister. And we went up to stairs in the number 10 flat. He poured me a drink and sort of said, Patrick, you've been a brilliant chief whip. I thought, oh, eh? what's going on here? But I think it's time to uh, head a department up. I'd like to offer you the chance of going back to the department you first started your ministerial career off, which was in 1989, I was a junior transport minister. He said, but I want you to go back as Secretary of State. So I knew six weeks before it actually happened that it was on the cards to happen. But I've been around long enough as Chief Whip to know until it actually happens, you are never sure that it will happen. So I had that whole summer of 2012 thinking I'm, I might become Transport Secretary. There's every chance I'm going to become Transport Secretary. But until it actually happens, it doesn't happen. And I remember saying to my principal private secretary, I'm, I'm going to, over the summer recess, because this was at the start of the recess when we'd had this conversation, 
Uh, I want to look at a few of the department's annual reports. So get me the Foreign Office report, get me the Treasury, the Home Office environment. Oh, and get me transport as well. And I had all these annual reports in my box. I obviously put all to one side, all of them other than the transport one. And I read the transport annual report about five or six times, trying to go through it, trying to understand exactly what issues were facing the department. I came to the view that the annual reports of government departments are a complete and utter waste of time. No doubt a lot of time and money is spent on preparing them, but they actually tell you very little about what's going on in the department when you actually arrive there. There was a very controversial issue at the time. Virgin had lost the franchise on the West Coast Main Line, and the first group had won it. We were going on holiday late in August, and I kept thinking, oh, please sign that before I get there. That's the last thing I want on my plate. And it dragged on and dragged on and didn't get signed. I arrived, I think, around about the 12th of September, when the reshuffle took full effect. I was assured by the department that it was a robust franchise and there was nothing wrong with it. I was asked to go before the select committee after a couple of days in office, which was rather odd because I hadn't really had time to do very much. I defended it and said that it was absolutely right. Two, three weeks later, I had to reverse the whole issue when problems became apparent and we were told that, you know, we were due in court and actually we'd lose the court case. So uh, that sort of started my arrival off at the Department of Transport with some fairly big, heavy issues to deal with. But I really enjoyed it. I was very nervous about it. Uh, I remember my wife saying to me, look, Patrick, you've been a backroom boy for a long time. Are you sure you want to be front-facing? But we both accepted, actually, that it was a great move. And I have almost four great years at the Department of Transport. Sometimes there were big issues. There were things that were going wrong. But I really enjoyed the department. I enjoyed working with the civil servants there, who I found enthusiastic. I always remember on the first morning going to the department. And I was shown to the Secretary of State's office. I was met by the permanent secretary at the door and taken up to the fifth floor of the, the department's headquarters and shown into this big office. And this lady came and served me with tea. And she said, Secretary of State, I was here when you were last here. And that was Jean, who looked after ministers on the uh, on the fifth floor of the department. There were a few that remembered me there as a junior minister between 1989 and 1992. That is absolutely fascinating. And it's wonderful that you had friendly faces when you went back and that you could jump in so quickly to what you needed to do. Where did you find the information that you needed? Well, I suppose the truth was that I'd been in the Commons for a long time. I'd been on the front bench. So I'd had a long apprenticeship. One of the things I was incredibly lucky was with appointing special advisors, because when you're in a department, although you are head of the department, you don't actually employ any of the people there. That's the job of the civil servants. That's the job of your permanent secretary. He's there as to manage the staff. So the only people you appoint, basically, is your special advisors. And I was incredibly lucky in getting a uh, text message from somebody who was actually working in number 10 Downing Street, saying, you know, I've had a long interest in transport. I'd love to be able to help you. And that was Julian Glover. My wife looked at this text message and she said, well, what does Julian mean by this? And we texted him back and he said, you know, I have a long-standing interest in transport. Indeed, he's written a fantastic book on uh, Thomas Telford, seen as the history of Telford, the man of iron. And he came to be my span. I mean, it was excellent because he was brilliant at the subject and knew his way around Whitehall as well. So new people 
in the Treasury. I, re I remember there was one occasion Julian was assisting the Chancellor with his conference speech, and uh, there were, we were having a bit of a disagreement with the Treasury. I spoke to Julian on the phone. He said, well, I'll, I'm with the Chancellor now, so I'll just check this out. And I can always remember that he said, well, the Chancellor's just agreed to that. So I told the permanent secretary the Chancellor just agreed to it and how it had happened. And I remember Philip Rutman looking at me. They won't let us forget this because we bypassed the whole system and got the Chancellor to agree to what we wanted to happen. can't remember the exact issue. But, uh, it was one of those. So appointing some good spads, and I had very good spads, Ben Maskell's, Lambert uh, and Julian Glover over a period of time working for me. They were fantastic people. Of course, but your straightforward manner and your ability to get things done will have undoubtedly helped. And that brings me to your time in the House of Lords now. Is it different trying to get your point across in the other place? Because obviously you maintain a lot of interest in transport there too. I don't think it's difficult. I think there's much more respect in the House of Lords. They know I was Transport Secretary for four years. So there, there is a chance when there's a transport question or a transport debate, I will get in to speak because the House of Lords is like that. It likes to hear from people who have been close to the subject and understand the subject. I think one of the things the House of Lords always has to remember is the elected House is the Commons. We're there to sometimes say to the House of Commons, think about this again. But at the end of the day, there is no doubt in my mind that the House of Commons is that the House has to get its way on legislation and on issues. If it doesn't accept what the Lords have said, then that is fine. But actually, if you look overall, the changes which are made in the House of Lords, there's quite a lot of changes made to legislation, which I believe makes legislation better at the end of the day. It is always better to have two heads than one, isn't it? <laughs> well... So sometimes more difficult to make a decision when you've got two heads. I remember seeing a letter in the Times a few weeks ago by somebody saying that the ideal size for a committee has to be an odd number and three was too big. <laughs> Absolutely. And so as well as being a member of the House of Lords, you're also chair of Transport of the North. And Transport of the North specifies its vision of a thriving Northern England where the world class transport supports sustainable economic growth excellent quality of life and improved opportunities for all. What do you think is key to ensuring this happens? The role of Transport for the North is to give a coordinated message across the North. And when you think of the area we represent, we go from Cheshire across to Sheffield, across to the Umber, and basically up to the Scottish border. Different transport issues and the importance of transport as a means of communications of getting about about the economic well-being of the areas. These are all very, very big issues where Transport for the North has a role, advising the government. We're a statutory transport body, the only one outside London. Uh, although there are other transport bodies, there's none on the statutory footing. You do have different projects underway that are designed to support the transformation of the North. So has the supply chain in the North got the certainty and confidence it needs to achieve this? What can be improved? Because the supply chain is really keen to make sure that they work with you at Network North. Transport basically leads to the well-being of individuals as well as economies. And it's making sure that where we can, we iron out those problems. We get better practice right across the whole piece. Some things in transport stay constant, but other things change. We've got to decarbonise our economy. So how do we see more electrification of the railways? How do we see better rail services? The upgrading of the railways. We're seeing the upgrading of the Transpennine route. It's a big job, 
The only trouble is it's, it's also a long job. It takes a long time. It's going to take over 11 years to finish the complete upgrading of the Transpennine route. That's because some of the problems are there are of very, very significant nature. We're dealing with some very difficult engineering issues. So how can the rail industry help you to make sure that it all works and that those issues are resolved? Reliability becomes the main key. Reliability and good frequent services. Our railways north and south in this country aren't too bad. They're very overcrowded. There is a big problem as far as more freight. People want to see more freight on the railways. The only trouble is there is one of capacity. Reliability east-west is not so good, and I think a lot more work needs to be done on that. One's only got to look at the transformational effect the Elizabeth Line has had in London, and you think that that line goes from basically Essex right across into Berkshire, but you know that's made a big difference, and that's less distance than we've got from Leeds to Manchester. And if you were Secretary of State for Transport again now, what would be the first thing you would change? We're now seeing, particularly in the north, rail patronage higher than it was for the pandemic. And not only higher, but at different times. So a lot more usage at weekends. And part of the trouble is that when you come to do any work on the railways, it does take an enormous amount of time, unless we go for more targeted closures, where we actually close the line for a certain amount of time to be able to work on the line 24-7. Because if you're working on it while the line is still operating, time activity is actually very, very restricted indeed, basically from 12 o'clock till 5 o'clock in the morning, which is not the most ideal time to work. So all those things have got to be thought about. Yes, absolutely. And talking of midnight, the uh, new year is here. So we are in an election year now. Can I ask who do you think is going to win the next election? I am always reluctant to give forecasts. I was told when I won my by-election in 1986 by the BBC, they'd done an exit poll and I'd lost. The returning officer told me I'd won. So from that particular point, I've always thought, best wait until you know the results before you start saying what they're going to be. I don't know when the election's going to be. And it will be a close-fought election, and the British people will have to make a decision as what the issues they want addressing and who's the best party to do that. I'll talk about the results, A, when we know when the election is, and B, when I know what the results are, because to do so beforehand is just not not worth doing. Ah, you see there, Lord McLaughlin, that's the chief whip coming out in you again, I have a fancy. So, No, 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 no it's, it's not the chief whip, it's experience. You get all these journalists and all these punters saying what this result will mean, etc, etc. Et I don't know what the backdrop of the general election is going to be. If you had asked me four years ago what would be the biggest challenge for the Conservative government that was elected, I would have said Brexit. I wouldn't have said Covid. I wouldn't have said a war in the Ukraine because I didn't know those things were happening. Those two things alone have just so dramatically changed everything in this country. We've just not foreseen four years ago. So just been around long enough not to predict what the election result's going to be until I know it. Absolutely. I think those are very wise words. So finally, what does give you most hope for the next generation coming ahead? There's dramatic changes which are taking place, lots more opportunities to take place. I think as a country, I want to see us respected abroad. And I think the United Kingdom has quite a good reputation in the rest of the world. 
I think the changes that are coming as far as technology, AI, uh, movements, all those kind of opportunities are really quite fascinating. I've got three very, very young grandchildren for 18 months and six weeks. I'm optimistic for their futures, but it's going to be tough and lots of things are going to happen. And on that, Lord McLaughlin, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. It has been most interesting to hear about what's driven you, how you got to where you are, as well as insights into behind the scenes. And thank you to the listeners who've hopefully enjoyed the show as much as we've enjoyed making it. If you have any questions regarding the podcast, please feel free to comment. If you think it's worth coming back, please like and subscribe. If you feel you need something to tide you over to the next podcast, please buy my book, Party Games, on Amazon. And on that note, I'll see you next time. Hope you have a good week, one and all.